everyone. Go ahead and open in your Bibles, if you would, to Exodus chapter 5. Exodus chapter 5. You guys are going to get your hopes up that we're going to really pick up pace through this whole book, right? Exodus chapter 5. And um, what a joy to be able to baptize some folks this morning. It was uh, exciting, and I know that um, for some of them, of course, nerves are involved to be able to stand in front of people. Not really for Amelia so much. <laughs> Maybe for the rest of us a little. But uh, it, it, it is a biblical thing. It is something that, uh, that the Lord commands us to do. And it has a lot of meaning to it. And part of that is a declaration before you all that, uh, that we want to be recognized as uh, members of the body of Christ. We want to be held accountable by you. And uh, we want to be considered as one of you among you. And so um, I'm excited for, uh, for the fact that, uh, that these kids wanted to be uh, baptized and follow the Lord in that. So I encourage you, uh, just like we did earlier, that if, if you know Jesus as your Savior and, uh, and you trust him but you've not been baptized, that, that's something you need to do. And so come and talk to me or talk to Chris or talk to Pastor Woody and, and um, uh, we can talk about that. That's, that's a, uh, an important step of obedience to, to the Lord there. So as you're, uh, as you're looking at Exodus chapter 5, um, I want to uh, take you back to a movie that I saw, of course, because I grew up on the book, and when the movie finally came out, of course, I had to see it, and, and that's the, uh, the Hobbit. And there's this scene in The Hobbit that, uh, that I, I want to draw your attention to. If you've not seen that movie, I'll, I'll try and explain it anyway, but, but uh, the main characters are traveling through Mirkwood, and it's this... It's this magical forest, not magical in a good way necessarily. It's, it's dark and it's thick and it's, uh, it kind of clouds their minds as they go and whatnot. And so they lose their way and they're, they're trying to travel from point A to point B, but they're going through Mirkwood and they lose their way entirely. And they're walking in circles and they're getting, you know, fighting with each other and, and kind of the magic of the forest is working against them. So do you remember how they, how they solve that, what they do? Well, they send Bilbo, who's the smallest of them all, they send him up to the top of the trees so that he can look out above the canopy. And he can, he can kind of look and see what's going on up there. He can get perspective on, on uh, how things uh, are laid out and, and the direction they really should be traveling and the way they've come and all that kind of stuff. And, and um, so he got that, that kind of perspective, right? And that's really kind of what last week's message was about, was that sort of perspective. All the way up above the canopy, there's, there's nothing higher, and you're able to look and see and get a clear lay of the land, Right? The problem is that you can't travel, unless you're a bird or some other kind of critter, from treetop to treetop to treetop all the way across. You've got to drop back down below the canopy and remember how to travel. And that's our chapter today. Last chapter, they, they were able to climb up and look. They were able to see, and God gave the highest possible perspective uh, of, of, of all of life. But we have to come back down below the canopy and live life. We live here with one another, with, amongst circumstances and, and even difficulties and whatnot. And so that's what's going on in our book today is that in chapter 5, we, we, we saw the peak in chapter 4. We, we got to look above the canopy, and now we have to drop back down. And uh, we're going we're gonna to cruise through and look at, uh, at chapter 5 and see what all is, is happening below the canopy and how they respond to it. But before we get to there, before we walk through our chapter, let me go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come to you this morning uh, because you are God Almighty. We trust you and we need you. Thank you that you have given us your word and that it is reliable and that it tells us 
about you and it tells us about reality and only in your word can we get that highest possible perspective. And only in your word can we find leading when we are below the canopy, which is almost always. So I pray for your blessing on our time this morning. I pray that you would be honored and that we would grow in our faith. I pray that, uh, that uh, you would help me to proclaim the truth that's in this passage in a way that is beneficial for the body of Christ here. Lord, work in us. I pray by your spirit that you would help us to receive what you have for us today. Help us to be attentive. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So before we get into to, uh, today's message, I want to you know, kind of go back and look at some crucial uh, highlights of the Bible to this point. Okay? So every now and again you need to do that. If you, if you always just drive with the, you know, the roadmap of the three streets around you, you, you can still get lost. You've got to back off every now and again and see the big picture. And uh, so that's what we're doing here. We want to back off and look. If you think back to Genesis chapter 12, uh, verses 1 through 3, that was where uh, God appeared to Abraham and, uh, and gave him instructions. And I'm reading those verses from Genesis chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so that's really the beginning of this whole thing. That's the beginning of God's relationship in that sense with the Hebrew people because they, they are the, the people who stem, the people of promise who stem from Abram and then through Isaac and then through Jacob and, and, uh, and into the 12 tribes of Israel. And so those were the promises that God made to, to Abram back there in Genesis chapter 12. Abram, whose name's, name would be later changed to Abraham and he would have children and God would begin to fulfill those. But then look at where we are now. Flash forward several hundred years and several generations from that time when, when God appeared to Abram and, and said those things to him. Now we find uh, God in the process of dealing with uh, his people. And, and how, how's the promise fulfillment going so far? Well, they're, uh, they're slaves. And they've been slaves in Egypt for a long time. They've been there for hundreds of years. They're in captivity. They're being forced to work uh, against their will, doing very hard labor. Uh, it doesn't seem like God is fulfilling his promises yet. But they're crying out to God, right? They're crying out to God. And if we remember back in chapter 2 and verse 24 of Exodus, we can see that God heard their groaning. And he remembered his covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. And he saw the people of Israel in their circumstances. And he knew what, what should be done to solve that problem. He saw their plight. And he compared it with the promises he had made, and he saw that the promises were not yet being fulfilled, and so he decided he was going to act in that way. And Genesis, or excuse me, Exodus chapter 3 and chapter 4 that we've gone through in the last few weeks has been him beginning to work. He's putting things in place. He's starting that motion where he's going to uh, be fulfilling, begin fulfilling in very clear ways those covenant promises that he had made. And then later on in, in chapter 6, he starts talking more specifically about how that's going to happen and laying out what his plan is very clearly to Moses. The point is that God keeps his promises. He made promises hundreds of years ago to Abram, and he keeps his promises. And so here we are, even though it's hundreds of years later, generations later, and now the people are in a dire situation, but God is a God who keeps his promises. And we've seen already through the book of Exodus how many times he's referred to that covenant, and he will keep that covenant. And he sees the people and he will keep his covenant with them. 
and knowing that God keeps his promises and knowing that Moses has been sent to be an instrument in, in, uh, in God's hands, uh, keeping those covenant promises. Let's look at our situation today. So we're in Exodus chapter 5, and we're going to cover the entire book and up through the first, or excuse me, the <laughs> entire chapter. We're going to cover the entire chapter. We're going to cover the entire chapter. <laughs> Not book. Some of you are, yeah, remembering last week and thinking it would take us a couple days. So we're going to cover this whole chapter. All right. So first of all, we're going to see that their situation, which was bad, goes to worse. All right. Their situation goes from bad to worse. And we're going to see what Pharaoh's response is. All right. Because Moses comes and Moses confronts Pharaoh. And so look at verse one there. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. That's, that's what he starts off with. Now, remember what God had told him to do. Flashback to 3.18 in your mind. I know you've got it memorized. Back to Exodus chapter 3 and verse 18. This is what he said. God, God had told him to say, You and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now please, let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Those were God's instructions to, to, to Moses. And what does Moses lead with? Right? Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. Eh, close. You know, I mean, he had the, the gist right. You know, it wasn't, wasn't maybe quite the same. Moses' tone kind of seems a little bit harsher than God's tone. God did actually include the word please in there. Say to him, please. Right? Say, you know, say it in this way. So it seems like Moses' tone is a little bit different. And, and maybe, maybe that's part of the reason for why, why things are going to go so poorly. But if you, if you remember back to last week and the view from above the canopy... God's in charge. God's in charge. Moses didn't screw it up and therefore everything goes downhill. But Moses is an instrument in God's hand at this point. And so we, we see in verse 2 there how he continues. But Pharaoh, what's his response going to be? Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. So his response isn't entirely surprising. Moses just approached the king and invoked the name of another king. And told this king what he should do. What did he think was going to happen? That, that, that's not going to go over well. Right? There's irony here in verse 2. Because look at Pharaoh's response. He says, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? I don't know the Lord. And so the next several chapters are going to be God making very evident to Pharaoh just exactly who the Lord is. And through that whole process of making evident to Pharaoh who the Lord is, he makes evident to the nation of Israel, to all of Egypt, and to us who the Lord really is. And the deeper irony is, is that we still don't know who this Pharaoh is. We have guesses. Scholars debate who, you know, who this Pharaoh was. In the end, it doesn't really matter. The Pharaoh, the one who didn't know who the Lord was and therefore wasn't going to follow his voice, is an unknown. And the Lord makes his name clear in this passage. So I, I, I love the irony there. Look down at verse 3. Then, the, then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days... He said, please. You notice that. Let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. And so you see that they, they kind of get back on track a little bit. They, they assume a little bit more of the tone that God had, it seems like God had instructed earlier on that they were to take with Pharaoh, right? They started off with shaking the finger. That, that often doesn't work well <laughs> when you lead with shaking the finger. And, uh, 
And so that's what they'd started with. And now they kind of back off and it seems like they have more of the tone that God wanted them to have. But you'll notice that even here, it seems like they embellish a little bit. I don't, I didn't see in 318 anything about pestilence and sword on the nation of Israel if they didn't do what they were told. And so it seems kind of like Moses may be embellishing a little. Um, It's not super clear, but that that kind of seems to be what's going on. Look at verses four and five. We'll see how the conversation is going to, going to conclude. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, behold, the people of the land are now many and you make them rest from their burdens. And so uh, that's, that's the, the end. He, he ends the conversation. He kicks Moses and Aaron out. That's the end. Mission failed. <laughs> they didn't, didn't really get exactly what they wanted. So, so much for uh, Moses confronting Pharaoh. And Pharaoh was infuriated with Moses' words. So he, uh, he sets out to punish the nation of Israel. And we're going to see here in the next few verses him punishing the nation of Israel. So we look down at verse 6. The same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they, that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore, they cry, let us go and offer sacrifices to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words." So we have a couple of groups of people here. We have the taskmasters and they're Egyptians who are kind of in charge of all the labor that's going on. Egyptian taskmasters. But then you've got the foremen who are Hebrews who've been raised up above the Hebrews and they're sort of in charge of getting that done, you know, taking commands to the people, making sure that that, uh, the slave force is getting the labor done that they're supposed to get done. And so you've got this very interesting structure. And so we know this story. We've heard this story a lot. And so it's not a surprise to us, but I want us to see kind of the genius of, uh, of what Pharaoh's done here is that he has divided his people. Uh, he's, he's divided his subjects, the people of, of Israel, so that they're now kind of struggling against each other and he's made it, he's made it rough. And we're going to see how that's going to play out. But his stated purpose is that the Hebrews should worry less about uh, religious festivals. Work them harder so they don't have free time to worry about what they're going to do on their day off. Just take away their day off, right? That kind of idea. He's going to work them hard. He's a, he's a master politician. We're going to see how that plays out. So the result of Moses coming to Pharaoh with instructions from the Lord is that Israel's plight is worsened. It doesn't really work out. Israel's plight is worsened. So the taskmasters, verse 10, and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and, tell, go and get your straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. So it's bad news. Bad news for the Hebrews. Work was bad, and so you're crying out about it? Okay, I'm going to intensify your work. That's, that's kind of the response that, uh, that, that Pharaoh has with him. And, and so, of course, we know the story. He takes away their straw and says, you enjoyed that we brought you and provided you this straw. That's no longer going to be an option. Have fun going and finding that yourself. But you've got to make the same number of bricks, right? So he removes one of the key ingredients and says, but your quota is still the same. And so go and gather it, right? But this straw is not just, you know, any old little twigs or, or whatever that you can find. It was, a, it was a special kind of plant, and it was cut especially for this purpose, and it had to be a certain level of, you know, greenness, or it couldn't be too dried out because of chemistry and stuff that went into it and, and whatnot. And so uh, Pharaoh said, all that's gone, good luck. And so they go around, and they're gathering stubble, like whatever they can find, 
you know, the grass clippings out of my backyard kind of thing. Whatever they can find to make bricks. And so not only is the work of going and finding it difficult, but now the work of making the brick is much more difficult because uh, the, raw, the raw materials that they're using are, uh, are subpar. And so the result is, is uh, no surprise there. Look down at verse 13. We can see kind of what happens there. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily task each day, as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not done all all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past. So why are you slipping on your quotas, right? And so the foremen, the Hebrews, who were in charge of, uh, of the Jewish labor force, they end up getting beat, right? Beaten. And so uh, the weight comes down on them. And so it's a, it's a bad deal, right? So the work, rather than getting better, Rather than God's people having been delivered, rather than Moses having received this message from Almighty, uh, Almighty God and given it to Pharaoh so that Pharaoh responds in obedience and lets the people go, rather than all of that happening, things have gotten worse, right? And so it's, uh, it's, it's difficult for, uh, for the nation of Israel, the, the, really the slave force and what they're doing, right? Moses' mission has been a total failure. Instead of being set free, the people are working harder. More than that, the Hebrew foremen are caught in the middle and they're being... Uh, they're having to bear the wrath of their masters uh, over this problem. Remember that Moses caused because Moses stuck his nose in and went to Pharaoh. So Israel's response is uh, going to become a theme, by the way, for the rest of Moses' life. They go from being worshipers at the end of chapter 4 to being whiners in this passage. So that's Israel's response. Look there at verse 15. Then the foreman of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given your servants, yet they say to us, make bricks, and behold, your servants are beaten. But the fault is in your own people. So they take their case directly to Pharaoh himself, the foremen do, and they complain to him, right? See, because they're being beaten for the slaves' inability to produce, and the real problem isn't the production level of the slaves. The real problem is that the Egyptian people are not supplying them with the straw, so it's a supply problem, not a production problem. Why are we being beaten for this? Why don't you straighten out the supply issue? That's kind of what's going on. The problem is with the Egyptians. It's not with the Hebrews, and yet the Hebrews are paying the price. And so Pharaoh's response there is, is predictable, and it's, it's not super original. Look there in verse 17. But he said, you are idle. You are idle. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. And so uh, he holds to the party line. He just repeats the instructions that were impossible before, repeats them again and says, obey these instructions. So not super original. And, and uh, since they aren't going to get anywhere complaining to Pharaoh, the uh, foremen go looking for the real source of their problems. And they go and complain to Moses. <laughs> He's the real problem in this whole situation. So Israel goes and complains to Moses. There in verse 20, they met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, The Lord look on you and judge, because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. You see, here's, here's where we see the political brilliance of the Pharaoh, that he's not just bumbling, he's not just a jerk, he's a jerk, but he's smart. And he has now completely turned the Hebrews against him and against one another in such a way that he doesn't even have to worry about him anymore he thinks, right? So you have, 
you have the workforce has been given added work, and it's an impossible amount of work, and it's an impossible kind of work. They can't meet the quotas, and so they're in trouble. And so the taskmasters and the foremen are, foremen are yelling at the, uh, at the workforce, and so you've got division there between the foremen and the workforce because the foremen are now the bad guys. They're the one giving the instructions. They're getting beaten because the quota is not being met. So they go and, and take out that on the uh, Hebrew workforce. And so you've got division right there, right? Well, now the foreman, who's the bad guy? Is it Pharaoh in, in their minds? No, it's Moses. Moses is a real problem. And so now you've got a complete breakdown in command. You've got chaos and they're struggling with one another. And there's Pharaoh just kind of chuckling to himself. Situation is solved, man. <laughs> He dealt with the whole thing. They're fighting amongst themselves. He doesn't have to worry about them. He doesn't have to worry about them banding together and joining any foreign force and fighting against them or leaving or anything like that because they're so busy squabbling amongst themselves. And, and so that's what uh, Pharaoh has done here. And in, uh, in, in it seems like it's kind of game over. And so they complain to Moses. And Moses takes his complaint and he takes it right to God. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Moses is just just as dejected as as the people are. He's disillusioned. And he takes his complaint straight to God, and he asks the the impossible question. By the way, it's almost always an impossible question. Why? Why? Why, God? Why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? Every tact I tried has failed. I came to speak to Moses in your name, just like you told me to, only Pharaoh hasn't relented. In fact, things are worse than they were. And God, I told you this would happen. You haven't delivered your people at all. You just put us more at the mercy of Pharaoh than ever before. And that's the complaint that Moses brings to God. And so, How's God going to respond? It would be an interesting theme, and maybe we'll get to look at it as we, as we progress through the book of Exodus, but how does God respond when Moses complains to him? Well, we'll, we'll see how God's going to respond here. But all the situation, the circumstances of all of chapter 5 have come like a slap in the face to Moses. Everything he's tried to do has gone south. He's got the opposite of the Midas touch. And so he's dejected, and he complains to God. So how's the Lord going to respond? Well, he's going to respond. The Lord is going to respond there in verse 1. We're only going to look at verse 1. We're not going to try and make it through another chapter. We'll do just for just verse 1 there. But did you notice, before we read verse 1, have you noticed that God never spoke in chapter 5? God never spoke in chapter 5. He was reported in speaking. Thus says the Lord, Moses quoted him. The Lord never spoke. Well, finally we hear his voice, and he speaks up here in chapter 1. And this is the first time we hear him speak, and he says, But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I shall do to Pharaoh. You'll see. You'll see. The problem is not that God had not been at work. The problem is that Moses hadn't been seeing what God was doing. Now you will see, God says to him. God had warned him in uh, back in chapter 3 and verses 19 and 20. He says, I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. And after that, he will let you go. So God had already warned him what was going to happen. He had already warned him that it was going to go bad before it got better, right? So God is at work. God is at work. 
And he says here, continuing on, that Pharaoh will send them out. Pharaoh will send them out. Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out. Moses, you're worried that uh, people have not been set free. They've not gotten out of the land. They've not been able to be delivered under your ministry so far. It's looking pretty bad. But with a strong hand, Pharaoh will send them out. God's telling him what's going to happen. You see, God is at work persuading Pharaoh to let the people go. That was, uh, that was Moses' initial demand, by the way. Let my people go. Let my people go. More than that, though, Moses, uh, God means to persuade Pharaoh to send the people out, not just passively allow them to leave. Or the Hebrew word that's translated let, earlier in our passage, let my people go, uh, it's the same root word as what's translated send here, but it's intensified. It's not just let them out like open the gate and let them wander out passively, but it's active. Send them out. Here in six one, he says, Pharaoh with a strong hand will send them out. Pharaoh will come to the place where he's not just going to passively let them leave. He's going to actively send out his own workforce, his own slave force. He's going to send them right out of the country. And not only will he send them out, but Pharaoh will drive them out. Look how he continues here. For with a strong hand, he will send them out. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out of his land. That's not the same word. God's going to work in such a way in Pharaoh's heart that that Pharaoh will be persuaded not just to, you know, let them go passively, leave the gate open, and, and not even just send them out, but to drive them out. This is the same word that's used back in Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve sinned, and what did God do? He drove them out of the garden. He drove them out of the garden so they couldn't stay there and, and be near the tree of life. And with that same idea in mind, Pharaoh is going to drive these people out. He's not even going to allow them to stay. He's going to drive them out. God is at work, even though Moses and Aaron and the Hebrews don't see it. And he has been the whole time. The Lord is merciful here and he gives them another peak above the canopy, that heavenly perspective. He's saying, I showed you a peak. And you got lost when you dropped back under the canopy again. I'll show you another peak. I am at work. You just haven't seen it. God is still on the throne. His plan is still in action. And his goals have not changed. Just watch, the Lord says. Just wait and see what I'm going to do to Pharaoh. And so he sets the tone for what's going to happen, what's going to come in our book, this, this wrestling match between God and Pharaoh. And we'll see how that works out. So I have a couple of points of application I would love to continue with the story, but if we pause right here and think about how this applies to us and think about what's gone on in, in this chapter, particularly versus the chapter before, I have three main points of application. The first one is that only in Scripture do we get the heavenly perspective like we did in 421. That's the only place we get that kind of perspective. We could, we could talk with one another and we could debate and we could argue and ask wise philosophers and you could look into the, you know, this person or that culture or that whatever. But the, the only time we get the ultimate peak, the only time we actually get to look above the canopy and see what is true and what's eternal is in Scripture. That's the only place we do that. And from that perspective, we can see all things working together for God's plan. And only by looking here can we do that. It's like Bilbo climbing up uh, in Mirkwood, climbing up that tree to get his bearings. We get to look into Scripture to get our bearings. So look into Scripture 
look into Scripture and get your bearings. And then when we climb back down into the murkwood of life, we might lose perspective. But we still have the Bible. We still have that peak. We still have that glimpse into the true ultimate perspective. So, like the psalmist said in Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. How are you going to navigate when you can't see any landmarks? When the land itself, when life itself is confusing? When everything's against you and you don't get it, are you going to self-talk your way into, uh, you know, into eternity? Are you going to self-talk your way through those kind of circumstances? A lot of people try that. It's only by looking at the true perspective that we can navigate those things, and that is God's Word. That's the first, first point of application. Secondly, Christian, are you feeling disillusioned because trusting Christ and following Him has not made your life easier but harder? Maybe, maybe the gospel you understood had to do with trust Jesus and everything will be good. Maybe that's not what was proclaimed, but maybe that's what you hear. And then you trust Jesus, and all of a sudden you're wrestling against the flesh. And you've never done that your whole life. You've got an enemy within, you, you never knew that. And life gets harder, not better. Life gets more difficult. Not that that's the final word, but your experience of it is, is like Bilbo walking through Mirkwood. It's confusing, it's hard. You get, you get tied in knots. So are you disillusioned because trusting Christ and following Him has not made your life easier but harder? God is going to remake you. He's going to conform you to the image of His Son in and by means of those trials. He's going to use those difficulties to form you into the image of His Son. James 1.12 said, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love Him. God doesn't make our lives easy. He works through the difficulties of our lives, and He helps us and empowers us and guides us in the midst of that to form us into the image of Christ. And so if you face difficulty in your life, it's not because God is not there working. It's because you're not seeing it. Thirdly, God's deliverance doesn't mean that we are taken out of our circumstances, maybe even dire circumstances. Believers are to endure hardship and suffering. We are to count the cost because there is a cost to following Jesus. He promises hardship and persecution along with the comfort and joy from Him that He promises. I love the way John says it in 1 John 3. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. <laughs> he puts it very simply. You, you, what, you're surprised that people don't like Christians? You're surprised that the world system is lined up directly against you? You're surprised by that? Peter talks about it in slightly different terms. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. You think this is weird? <laughs> this is what Jesus has called us to. He himself suffered. We're going to suffer. The world hated him. The world's going to hate us. So don't be surprised by that. Don't be put off by that. Don't, don't be thinking that you're on the wrong path because the world hates you or because life is difficult or because God hasn't taken you out of your circumstances and therefore what have you done wrong or where's God? He uses those things precisely to conform us to work in our lives.
He uses those exact things. Just because your circumstances may not look like God is in the process of delivering you. In fact, they may look like they're all lined up for your destruction. But that doesn't mean that God is not actively at work for your deliverance and to conform you to the image of Christ. Like Moses, you may not see right now that God is working, but God is at work. And so last week, we, we spoke from the highest place in all of Scripture, the, the Mount Everest of Scripture. We, we spoke and we looked from up there. And then you enter your week and you think, oh, it seems so clear when we were talking about God being in control of everything. And now I'm back under the canopy and life's difficult and it's hard. What, what's wrong? What? We live our lives under the canopy. Day in and day out is under that canopy. Peek your head up and get a, get a look. Dive into scripture and get a look. But you have to live your life trusting that the God who showed you that vision, that perspective above the canopy where you saw everything from the highest possible heavenly perspective, the same God who, who showed you that, he's the one at work when you can't see him at work. So believe that. Last week was that peak. This week is, okay, how do we live our lives now? How do we live now? And it's by faith. It's trusting that what he said is true. We got a glimpse. And those, those, those glimpses are found in Scripture. And in life, life would want to discourage us and dissuade us. And so that's, that's, my, that's my takeaway from looking at chapter 5 here is that Moses is back now under the canopy. And, and we live most of our lives there. And so I take great comfort from that. Knowing that even though we saw the sovereignty of God, yet in real life, it can be difficult to see. And even Moses, who was right there, had trouble seeing it. And God was faithful and merciful to come back and say, you're just not seeing it. And by the way, he's not done talking. The book continues, and he continues to talk to him. But that's where we are right now. And so that's, that's what I, I want us to take away from this passage, is that comfort. Life is difficult. That doesn't mean God is not there. Take comfort from that. Let's pray. Father, we love to see the plan. We love to look from the top and know uh, what's going on. We love to understand. We love to have it laid out for us, what the schedule is going to be, what the plan is going to be, how it's going to feel, and how we can avoid the things we don't like, how they're going to feel. And uh, sometimes you give us glimpses. Sometimes you, you tell us that ultimate perspective. Those times are rare. Those times are rare that we get to look from the top of Mount Everest and see. We live our lives down here, below the clouds and below the treetops and in the, in the, the, the confusion of life. And so, Lord, I pray that you would work in each of us, that we would trust you even below the canopy that we would understand that you have not changed, your plan has not changed just because we've lost sight of it. Thank you that you are unchanging. Thank you that you keep your promises. No matter how it appears, you keep your promises. Pray for your blessing on each one here. I pray that they would know you that way. I pray that they would trust you that way, that God is the promise-keeping God. And what you said you would do, you will do, period. Lord, thank you for your word that tells us 
truth that gives us that high perspective and that gives us guidance when we're down in the weeds. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So by the way, this is the uh, last Sunday of the month, and so that's when, uh, if, if you're new or you'd like to come and uh, chat with the elders and get to know us, we're not going to do that in the fellowship hall like we did last month. We're going to do that right down here. There's something else going on over there. So come on down, meet us, and we would love to meet you. God bless you all, and you are dismissed. <laughs>